Greetings. In that precious name. Are you saying this morning, hallelujah, what a savior. Can you say that? Amen. I appreciate the devotional that Bill had. Um, I knew Bill as a man with the gift of mercy. I see, I know we saw that come out this morning. I think actually Bill might have a double gift of mercy. Maybe he would agree with that. I don't. But God is still working on all of us. So, appreciate those thoughts about the Son of Man. I also want to greet all the visitors that are here. And uh, yes, all the preachers that are in the crowd, welcome. I know what it's like to uh, just also go somewhere and just be able to sit in and just listen. That's a blessing. Also, the children's lesson, little things make a big difference. Little words, little deeds, little actions, little thoughts have a big difference in our lives. Why don't we just stand again for a word of prayer before we go on? Let's pray. Lord, hallelujah, what a Savior. If we come before you, we recognize that you are the Son of Man. You have come upon this earth to walk among men, to be one of us, and yet, Lord, with a specific purpose, Lord, to uh, to win the victory over the devil and to win our salvation. So thank you, Lord. I just pray, Lord, as we are together in this part of the service, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, though you went back to heaven, though you are sitting or standing there on the Father's right hand, Lord, you are also here. And you're also here to uh, succor, succor us, to help us, to aid us, and to bless us. So, Lord, I pray you would do that this morning to each one of us. And pray, Lord, as your word goes out, that it may have the intended effect that is according to your plan and purpose. And pray, Lord, that your will be done, that your kingdom would move forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Can turn to Micah chapter six this morning for a main text. Micah and I have a familiar verse that we'll eventually end up at. Some of you will recognize it. What does the Lord require? Relationships are wonderful. We are created to be social creatures. Are there any hermits here this morning? Probably not, or you wouldn't be here. Connection. Interaction. Responding. Talking. Smiling, laughing, or just being together and sharing. That's what relationships are all about, right? Imagine Adam and Eve before the fall. How they interacted and related with each other. And with God. Because the greatest joy in life come from good relationships. Now, are relationships always that way? Is any relationship like that all the time? And maybe we could ask the question, are most relationships that way? You know, 
Some of the greatest pain on earth is the emotional pain of a bad relationship. You know, the closest relationship that there is on earth is marriage. And it's often described as a good marriage it is the um, closest thing to heaven on earth. And a terrible marriage is closest thing to hell on earth. You know, to lesser degrees, that's how all relationships are. Positive or negative. For good or bad, whether it's family, children, work, neighbors, church, friends. Instead of a connection, there's a breakdown. Instead of interaction, there is reaction. Instead of laughing, there is anger and pain. You get the picture. Now, what's the most important relationship of all? Anyone say? God. Us with our Creator. Now, if you were a deist this morning, that wouldn't concern you. Because you would think that the Creator... Some creator back there spun this whole universe into existence, set up the laws, and it runs like a clock, but he's gone, and there's no relationship possible. That's what a deist believes. But God, in his word, tells us a very different story. It tells us how in the beginning, how he created the universe and the world out of nothing, Then he prepared this very special globe that we call the earth. He prepared it. He um, made the water, the land, the air, plants, animals, sun, moon. And uh, he prepared it for one special creature, which is man. You know, man is very different from all the other animals that ran about in the dry ground. Different than that mouse that we had here the other Sunday. He's different. Man is different than any of the fish that swim the seas or the birds that go in the air. What's so different about man? I'll just read here in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them, him, male and female created he them. And two seven states, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then God talked with them. It's implied in chapter 3 that during the cool of the day, he came and he walked with them. He interacted with them. They had a good relationship, Adam and Eve did, and they had a good relationship with God. It was bliss, Perfect bliss in the real meaning of that phrase. Sometimes we say something is perfect bliss. This was perfect bliss in its fullness. You know, it's a mystery that God, the self-existent, the eternal one, wanted to create a creature that he could interact with. That's a mystery. That is You can think for a long time on that one. But that's what God wanted. He wanted a creature that he could interact with. And so he did. He created a creature called man that he could interact with. Of course, mankind broke that perfect bliss. It's good to remember it was man that did that, not God. 
God doesn't do stuff like that. God doesn't fail, but man does. Then God made a way for man to continue that relationship. Things were not the same, though. But through the sacrificial system, whatever they were given back then is not always clear, but it was clear that man could continue his relationship with God. There was a prescribed way back to God. In Genesis chapter 4, we have this verse in 26, 4, 26. And to Seth, that was the third son of Adam and Eve, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enoch. And then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Man could still walk with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. So individuals could still have a relationship with God. Then let's fast forward it to the time of Abraham and to the Hebrew people. After God brought them out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and there he enters into a covenant with his people, the whole nation. God is going to do something a little different. God is progressing. He's now going to relate with a whole group of people through a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. Two parties have a covenant. God will keep his part. He will bless them. He will prosper them. He will be with them. And the nation will do their part to not go after other gods, but to love him to put him first, and to keep his commandments. So now God is now relating. You remember God's intention was to create a people, I mean create a creature he could relate with. So now he is relating specifically with a specific people. It doesn't mean that he completely neglects all the other people in the world. I, I'm not quite sure. We're not quite what sure relationship God has with the whole world. But there was this specific people that he was going to bring the Messiah, and he is entering into contract uh, covenant with them, and he's going to bring the Messiah into the world through these people. Did God keep his side of the covenant? And we say yes. Did the people. And that's where we're here at Micah. At the background of Micah. Micah the prophet is warning the southern kingdom, Judah, of the violation of their side of the covenant. Now they weren't flat out heathen. They weren't even idol worshippers. Not in this in this situation they weren't. They were, in today's language, religious church-going people. The revivals of the godly king Hezekiah occurred during the ministry of Micah. Was it because of Micah's uh, preaching? I'm not quite sure. But during that time, most of the idolatry was wiped out of the southern kingdom. Now, that wasn't true in the northern kingdom, Israel was still on its path of deserting God. And there were no righteous reforms or rulers in that area. And so they continued down their path. And it wasn't too long till they were destroyed. So down in the southern kingdom, things were much better. But how well were things deep down? Does God look at the outside or does God look at the heart? What do you think? We all know the answer, don't we? So, there's something wrong here. So we go in Matthew, uh, Micah chapter 6. God is relating with his people, but he's going to do it in a very unique way. He's going to summon them to a court. You know, 
when you summon someone and you're going to charge them with something, that's a relationship too. Did you know that? It's not perfect bliss, believe me. A parent confronting a child is part of a relationship. These confrontations or corrections can be painful for both the person or the party doing the confrontation as well as the party receiving it. And there's a full range of responses and reaction to these confrontations. So God summons his people to court. So we'll read the first two, cha- uh, two verses here. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountain, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead or reason with Israel. God calls the court together, and he calls the hills, the mountains. Basically, he calls creation to witness, to witness the proceedings. All of creation is summoned to court to hear the Lord's lawsuit against his people for breaking their covenant with God. And then he begins the court proceedings by reminding them that he, God, is, has kept his agreement. So let's read on here in verses 3 to 5. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me, or answer me. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I set before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal that ye may know the righteousness or the faithfulness of the Lord. You, Israel, are guilty of being unfaithful. And God is saying, what did I do? How did I fail you? How did I fail you to give a reason to go somewhere else? And they're brought to court and they're challenged with their sin. What did they do? Well, if you look at Micah, they oppressed the poor. They, uh, they had abusive use of power for social and personal gain. They were dishonest in their business dealings. And they forsook the true heart of the covenant. What is the true heart of the covenant that God made with them? Deuteronomy, I'll just read there in Deuteronomy 10, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Here's the heart. And now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, and to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. The Lord had told them plainly, it was not hidden. I don't know, there in Romans we could say, now, where is the word of the Lord? Do you need to go way beyond the sea and find it? Do you need to go to the depth of the ocean and find it? Where's the word? Where's the word of faith? And he said, no, it's right close to you. And here was the word. It was right before them. They knew what was required of them, but they were failing their part. In any relationship, when there's a confrontation, you will have a response. And Israel responded. God's covenant people had to respond. They, when, you, when you come up to a court, when you're brought, the charges are brought before you, you have to respond somehow. 
So they responded. Well, they looked at it. They didn't deny the charges. And they know they're not at a good place. Now what? What are you going to do? Well, here's their response. Verses 6 and 7. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So they're asking questions. Well, what shall we do? You know, they're trying to plea bargain with God in this court setting. Israel knows they're guilty. And they know that in court, it's not going to go well with them. They know that. What do people often do if they are if they know a court proceeding is going to go bad for them. What's another option? Anybody have any idea? Settle out of court. Who said that? Myron. Settle out of court. Doesn't look good for us in court. So let's meet. And let's try to figure out a way to settle this thing before we go to God and are judged. We will clearly be at disadvantage in court. So God, how can we satisfy you? How can we somehow deal with this thing so that to get you off our back a little bit, to forget what we've been doing And just dismiss the charges and let us get off the hook. They're attempting to alleviate their situation by offering sacrifices rather than really repenting. And though they obviously know what they should do, they are acting innocent and they're asking God, okay, what do you want? What really do you want? They are trying to avoid doing the one thing that they don't want to do. They will do anything for God. We will get thousands of rivers of oil. We will offer you our firstborn children. I don't know if they actually would. They did to idols. But what will it take? We'll do anything. Just don't demand that one thing that I don't want to give you. And that's Myself. That is to devote myself to you with all my heart. They were asking God how they could please him as if they were interested in pleasing him. But in reality, they weren't. They think... God is deceived with the act as if they're sincere, but it's actually a disguise. They were willing to offer God anything at any time to keep from doing the one thing that God really demanded of them, which is the thing they did not want to do, and that is to give themselves to God without reserve. Anything else, just let me remain control of my life. I am willing to deprive myself of certain things. I am willing to do ritualistic things, even difficult things, strict performances. I can be generous with my money and give to the poor. I can do lots of things. Just let me keep my heart for myself. 
Do you know they were like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know, well, what, what, what do you think? And he said, well, keep the law and so on, so on. So on. Uh, Jesus asked him, he responded, had that interaction there, and he said, yep, I have meticulously kept the commandments. He's very willing to do. And Jesus touched one thing in his life which will require his all, and he said, can't do that. Jesus' answer was simple. Sell out, come and follow me, and you will have real treasure in heaven. And that was the one thing he would not do. You know, what is the Lord's response? So the Lord charges them, they respond, and then the Lord responds. And it is the response is sublime in its simplicity. It's clear, it's direct. With one hand, he pushes all their plea bargaining aside, all their sacrificing aside. And here it is, verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The answer to the law of the Lord to their plea bargaining was a flat out no. He hath showed thee what I'm telling you here is nothing new. It's not a secret. It never was a secret. You cannot plead innocence by pleading ignorance. The only plea you have is neglect and disobedience. If you would hear the law, it would inform you. If you would listen to your conscience, it would guide you. So no, there is no slack given. You know your responsibility. He has showed it unto thee. Well, what did the Lord show? Let's look over, over this verse now. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. When something is good, it is good. They're right. I know you can't use the same word to describe a word because it doesn't make sense. But on the first day of creation, when God made the light, he looked at the light and he said, this is good. Light is good unless, unless you want to hide. Then he divided the, you know, as he made creation different times, he said, it's good, it's good. And at the very end, when he looked it all over, he said, it is very good. All God makes is good. Everything he designs is good. Everything he commands is good. Everything connected to God is good. So he tells them, I have told you what is good. What you have taken upon yourself to do is not good. But I tell you what is good. Listen, listen, this is good. So he had told thee, showed thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require? What does the Lord require? Well, first we should maybe ask, is there a requirement? Does the Lord require things? You know, we, we start at the beginning of the message with relationships, and the Lord wants relationships. Is there a requirement to have a relationship with God? Are there requirements to continue a relationship with God? We know the answer, don't we? Well, actually, in the Christian world, so to speak, <laughs> the answer varies significantly, actually, on that question there. You know, in the Old Covenant that we're, we're talking here, there is 
clearly a requirement laid upon God's people in their response in keeping their part of the covenant. Clearly there was a requirement laid. Now, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about God's faithfulness. You know, God was faithful in keeping his covenant. And this covenant, though, there were two sides to it. The people had to keep their side also. I want to look at another covenant. And that is, I'm just going to read there in Genesis chapter 9. And this is the uh, covenant after the flood when there was a rainbow. 14 and 15. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which I made between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow. We can look at the rainbow and remember God's promise, but here it says God looks at the rainbow and remembers his promise. Now, if if that covenant, that promise that God made with all mankind would depend on mankind remembering it, how often do you think the earth would have been flooded again? But it's an unconditional covenant. It's one-sided. God says, I will put the bow there, and I will look at it, and I will remember, and there will be no more flood to destroy all the earth. That is a covenant with no requirements. There is nothing you or anybody can do to break that covenant because it is an unconditional covenant. You can't make God flood the earth. Now, it's going to stand. Now, many people from a Calvinist or an eternal security persuasion will take that covenant and they will bring it into the new covenant and they will liken the same. And there is a preacher that I have a significant respect for that does that. And I want you to follow this as you can. Stay awake and follow this line of thought here I want to bring out here. It's C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. He had about this covenant in uh, I Will Remember My Covenant. He has, has just a verse. It's one of those devotionals that he has. And he talked about the covenant that God made about the rainbow and not going to flood the earth. And this is what he says. Note the form of this promise. God does not say, and when you look upon the bow, you will remember my covenant, and then I will not destroy the earth. But it is gloriously put not upon our memory, which is fickle and frail, but upon God's memory, which is infinite and immutable. So when the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. It is not my remembering God, it is God remembering me, that is the grounds of my safety. It is not my laying a hold of his covenant, but his covenant laying a hold on me. And now you immediately see how he's taking the one covenant and now he's superseding it onto the new covenant. And then he goes on here. My looking to Jesus brings me joy and peace, but it is God's looking to Jesus that secures my salvation and that of all his elect since it is impossible for our God to look at Christ, our bleeding surety, and then be angry with us for sins already punished in him. It is not left with us to be saved by remembering the covenant. There is not a single thread of human effort in the fabric. It is not of man, neither by man, but of the Lord alone. We should remember the covenant, And we shall do it through divine grace, but the hinge of our safety does not hang there. It is God's remembering us, not our remembering him. And hence, the covenant is an everlasting covenant. You know, there's wonderful truth in there, 
mixed with air. The error is, is that it is all God and there are no requirements. There are not even any expectations. If you are a child of God, one of the covenant people, you are in. Just as God made the covenant with the earth not to destroy it, so he made a covenant with you and you're saved, you're in. You never need to fear again the judgment of God. You are eternally secure. You know, we are immersed in evangelical books and messages, and there are lots of good things we can learn in them. But there are some sizable differences in values and focus and doctrine. And we must be aware of that also. That is one of the reasons we have taken a stand against Christian movies. You know, the Protestants or the evangelicals tend to focus on the beginning of the Christian life, the new birth. The Anabaptists tend to focus on the life and the works. Both are desperately needed, but both are needed. But God requires something of his people. Let's divert a little bit. I was going to bring two examples in New Testament of what God requires, but I'm going to just bring one example out. You can turn to Colossians chapter 1 if you want to. And there's 21 to 23 familiar verses. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached unto every creature which is under heaven. God has done so much for us. He has changed us from enemies to saints. That's a big change. He has opened the way by his death. When he came down on earth and he took the devil on his own turf, took the devil on, on his own turf, and was victorious over the devil. He was. And then, then he died, and then he rose again, and whoever believes on Jesus becomes a partaker of that power and that grace and that deliverance from both his sins and the power of the devil. That's the gospel. That is awesome. That's amazing. We enter into the same victory over the devil when we enter into covenant and relationship with God, when we repent of our sins and believe on Jesus. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, not moving away from the hope of the gospel. As you have received the Lord Jesus, so walk ye in him. So there would be many examples we could. I'm not going to skip over any. And the point is, what does the Lord require? Well, in the covenant that we're reading here, here's a requirement to the people there that Micah was preaching to. And there's the requirement to do justly, love mercy, and walk Humbly with God. And we'll look at those three points here in the last part of the message here. Do justice means making right judgments. When, uh, when Abraham was speaking to God over the issue of Sodom there in the Old Testament, in the old covenant, uh, in, in, uh, there in, uh, uh, Abraham was talking to God over Sodom when God was ready to destroy Sodom. And Abraham 
asked Sodom this question, not asked Sodom, asked God this question. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That word right is the same word as just that we're looking. Will not the judge of all the earth be just? And, of course, the answer is yes. To do justly means to make a right judgment. It's actually something you do. It's actually something you are required to do. By faith, through grace, to be sure, but you are required to do it. Not think it. Not wish it. Not talk it. Do it. Do what? Do justly. Perform right actions. Make correct decisions. Uh, The word justice is always linked with righteousness in the Old Testament. So to do justice is to pass righteous judgment in all cases. It's to evaluate and to judge and make assessment based on the standard of God's character as revealed in his word and in the life of the Lord Jesus. And it's all-inclusive. It includes every decision that you make, every judgment that you render, every action that you perform, every relationship that you are a part of. It's everything on the inside. It's everything on the outside. It's your motives and your expressions and your responses. Everything that you as an individual in this culture which you live need to make decisions on. And that is what the Lord requires. You know, that means we don't succumb to the American dream if we want to do justly as the Lord requires. You know, it was brought to my attention in recent weeks that as we have been seeking to give direction in this congregation in various areas, especially in clothing and other areas like that, that we don't miss other kingdom focuses such as our lifestyles. As our affluence tends to increase, we intend to increase our, um, our lifestyle rather than our service or generosity. Our homes get bigger and more expensively furnished and decorated. Our vehicles become newer and more upscale. Our trips and our vacations become more frequent and or more expensive. Our food choices and our restaurant choices and things of that nature, same thing. Many times our choices are not between good and evil, but between self and service. Much more could be said than that on that one. To do justly. I think I can speak for many of us here. I think I can speak for myself here. Our sin, now we don't want to call it sin. Let's call it selfishness, okay? Sin is a strong word. So maybe I want to use selfishness, okay? Is usually a little deeper in our hearts than we want to admit. Many of us don't realize the seriousness of our selfishness until we experience the consequences of it. We don't usually fall into sin. Sometimes we plan it or make provision for it. We send spies into the land to see if we can do something and maybe get away with it. And then we try to cover it up with some kind of outward performance. You have any idea what I'm talking about or no? 
I do. God is clear. He said, I do not. It's not that I did not command sacrifices. God did command outward performance. He did. But I never, never intended the outward to be a sham or a cover for a deficiency in your inside. Never as a cover to hide an unrighteous heart. I require that heart. A quote I got from somebody, I don't know anymore where I got it, but I wrote it down, so I have it. It said, it is easier to have a great plan to change the world than it is to ask God to change your own rotten attitude. Okay. We can have big visions and big dreams out there. Sometimes we need to have bigger visions and dreams inside. To do justly and to love mercy. Love mercy, Bill, right? This word is translated in the classic King James sometimes as loving kindness. You know that word, that strange, interesting word in the King James Version? Loving kindness. That's this word mercy here. Grace, kindness. You know, it just, it doesn't say do justice and then do mercy. It doesn't say do mercy. It doesn't say show mercy. It doesn't say even be merciful. It says love it. Love mercy. Love kindness. Now, I'd like to ask the question here. What's going on here? First, God says, you are to do what's right. You're supposed to do what's true. No compromise. It's my way. I mean, God's way. And no other way. It's God's way or the highway. So, which is it? Is it justice or is it mercy? How we understand this. You know, there is a verse that describes the Lord in whom we are to grow into his likeness. And it describes the Lord. And it's in, in uh, Psalms 85.10. It's one verse I'm just going to pick out of the, uh, after the Israelites came back from uh, captivity. After they were chastised and after they were uh, restored to their land. Here is one verse that is really precious. That mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know, there is to be a very close correlation between justice and mercy. The reason the old covenant, when God made the old covenant, With Moses, the reason that covenant stood the whole way to the time of Christ is not because of God's justice. (laughs) It's because of his mercy. If he would have been acted in justice every time they violated it, they'd have been destroyed many times over. But there was a justice, there was a requirement, there was a punishment, but there was mercy the whole way through. Much more than they deserved. The world would not exist today if God were only just and were not merciful. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Talking about him coming back. He's coming back sometime. He's coming back. But he's not slack concerning his promise as some man counts slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Lord is merciful. And the Lord requires that we be merciful. Long-suffering. Someone recently told me what originally attracted them to harmony. I think that was before the divide. 
And I don't know if I have it completely correct. This is what I remember. He said there was diversity and there was mercy and there was no compromise. Now, that's good. I like that. There was not a rigid wooden adherence. But there was mercy, but there was no compromise. Delight in mercy. Take pleasure in it. There is much grace to be given to each other's shortcomings and failures. One of them is to be harder on yourself than you are on other people. If you think or you see it's wrong for others to gossip, make sure you don't gossip. If you know it's wrong for another to be unsubmissive to her husband, be clear in your own responses to your husband or authority. You know, it's easy for our love and mercy to be short on the slight misunderstanding or the small offenses or the inadvertent word or that rumor. Here are some other words for mercy. It's care. It's sympathy, compassion, gentleness, tenderness. The Lord requires this in conjunction with justice or no compromise. And so what does the Lord require thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Here we're back to the heart in relationships. We started with relationships and we end with relationships. A literal rendering of that walk humbly with God is to humble or humiliate yourself in order that you can walk with God. Now that seems really contradictory. Here is the eternal God. He is really great. But we have to humble ourselves so we can walk with him. How does that work? Well, the reason it works is because we usually have a too high of opinion of ourselves. A high view of God and a low view of ourselves is what is needed. Now, where, where, where do we get that? Where do we get that view? Well, we don't get it from secular literature or from the humanistic news. Should I say the one president candidate's name? You don't get it from him. You don't get it from the health and wealth gospel preachers. You don't get it from the self-help books. You know, you get it in the Word. If you really look at the Word and see ourselves described, there is a classic description of this relationship in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath mine hand made, and these things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God is God, and man is not. Is that right? God is good and man is not. God is powerful and man is like the flower of the field that's here for a little bit and then it's gone. That, you know, that's how the publican, when he came to the temple to pray, that's how he came. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's what was missing in the Pharisee who came the same time. And we ask the question, who was walking humbly with God? Not the fasting, tithing egotist. He was not walking with God. He was not humble. Who was the one who sensed his need before God? David is another example. He was a man. He was a driven man. He was driven. 
He was a man after God's own heart. And as all the Old Testament characters, well, there's many of them. You can think of Joseph. You can think of Daniel. David is one of my favorites. You know, he wanted to build a temple for God. Just because he loved God. And then Nathan told him, no, no, don't do that. But then Nathan told him some other things. Nathan said, just because you wanted to, I'm actually going to build you a house. God is going to build David's a house. He promised that the kingship would always remain in David's family. It would not be taken away like Saul's kingdom was. And what was David's response? And I'm going to read in 2 Samuel a few verses here. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Then went David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? Who am I? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? David's reflecting. I am the top guy in this kingdom. I used to be caring for sheep. Now I'm caring for the nation. And who am I? And then he said, And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And what can David say unto thee? For thou, O Lord, knowest thy servant. God was blessing David. David recognized he did not deserve it. He recognized it was the grace of God. It was the blessing of God. It was not in me that deserves it. And he was humble. The people to whom Micah ministered did not get the message. As you continue reading... Um, they didn't seem to get the message. The very fact that they were so guilty before God should have motivated them to turn from their shallow religion to humble themselves and seek God's mercy. Because the only people that God can save are lost people. The only people God can forgive are guilty people. If we see ourselves as God sees us, then by faith we can become what he wants us to become. In Luke, we're going in Luke a little bit also, Brother Bill, one that you did not read. When you have done all these things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We just have done which is our duty to do. You know, As we seek to be true to the word of God here in this congregation, we must remember that we do not have a corner in God's kingdom. We do not have a corner on God. We're not, we don't own any piece of the kingdom. We're not elite. We're not special or elite because of who we are or what we stand for. We are special because we belong to God. We had the privilege of entering into the very thing that God made us for, entering into a relationship with him. We have that privilege. We have the privilege of being dependent on our God. And that is a privilege. To give him worship. And obedience. Let's not ourselves here make any plea bargains with God. Let's not settle in doing things or sacrificing things for things He doesn't need anyway. But what is required? Walk humbly with your God to love mercy and to do justly. You know, did you notice I turned the order around? That is actually the true order. 
Walk humbly with your God. Love mercy and do justly. That is what the Lord requires, whether it's the old covenant or the new. If we're going to have a relationship with him, if we're not going to be called to a court and be challenged by him. You know, God delights in relating with his people. He died to pave a way for our relationship with him. He inhabits the praises of his people. I think he inhabited the praises this morning that we had this morning. And this relationship with our God is intended to be most blissful relationship that you can have. And remember, the Lord Jesus Christ is always going to be faithful on his part. And here's a final verse. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you as we walk humbly with our God. God bless you.